are super, super excited for them and really grateful for all that they do for this place. They have such a love for this church family and investment and care for this church family. And so we're really excited um, just to see them taking this next step in their relationship. And so um, you can't see them. They're glowing bright red in the back right now, but uh, that's just how it works. Uh, but so we love them and congratulations, guys. Um, join me in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Uh, if, if you have a Bible with you or on your phone or tablet or whatever that looks like, if you want to click there. Uh, those of you who are at home, we are going to be doing communion at the end of the message. And so if you didn't get that text um, or didn't see it on social media, um, just to make you aware of that. Um, again, if you don't have, if you don't get emails or texts from the church, then um, when the QR code pops back up there, again, just hold up your camera and, make, and you can go to the connection form and that's how you could update your information as well. Um, but just so you know, communion is a coming. So we've been in this series called Becoming, going through the letter of, the New Testament letter of Philippians. And really the prayer of this series, the thing that we have kept coming back to is Jesus, help us to be the people that you are working on us to become. Help us to be the people that you are working on us to become. And one of the big things we've said is that Jesus is always working. He is always at work. He never gets tired. He never gets weary. In any and every situation, he is working on the people that we are. Not merely working on us to become a slightly better version of who we are. We need to clarify that as well. But he is working on the new identity that he gives us in Jesus. He is working on who we are in Christ. He wants us to become more like Jesus. And so Philippians 1 says, This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. He is working on who we are, that we would become more like Jesus. And for all of the work that God has done and continues to do, in the text that we're looking at today, we get to the core truth of our side of things, what we need to value and hold on to. You know, there's all kinds, uh, all of Scripture is inspired, all of Scripture is valuable, all of Scripture is powerful. There's parts of it that really grip our hearts, and there's parts of it that really um, impact and influence even our own personal walks and our own stories. And I'm really excited to be able to share from this passage today because this is one of mine. In fact, this is probably the passage that uh, sometimes people talk about a life verse or things that have really guided and influenced and God has just really impacted them. And today's passage is that for me. Um, and so my story is in here so much and I'm so grateful to be able to share just how this passage has impacted me and hopefully it'll be an encouragement to you. And really the idea of today is this, is that becoming like Jesus, because if that's our goal, if that's what Philippians is about, if that's what Paul's been praying toward for them and what we're praying toward for ourselves, that we would become like Jesus, that what at the heart of Philippians 3 is this, is that becoming like Jesus means Jesus is my everything. 
To become like Jesus means that Jesus has to be my everything. Dictionary.com defines obsession like this. The domination of one's thoughts or feelings by a persistent idea, image, or desire. Now, for some people, the thing that dominates their thoughts is a sports team or a sport in of itself. For others, it's some type of a hobby, maybe a TV show or music, or maybe they're a foodie or some other aspect of pop culture. For others, there's a noble cause or something with politics. Others, it's a social issue that needs to be addressed. It just dominates their thoughts. But that's the thing. Being obsessed with one of these things, it isn't that somebody is merely interested in them. It isn't that this comes up every once in a while. This is, you know what somebody is obsessed with because it's the thing that they don't shut up about. It's the thing that they constantly talk about, that constantly comes up, that constantly is just coming out of them whether they realize it or not. As the definition states, an obsession dominates our minds and our hearts. So when we think about that idea, that the thing we think about when our mind wanders, the thing that we think about that guides our aspects and our decisions and our directions, the thing that we think about that we want to tell others about and we want them to experience, Jesus is everything means that we are obsessed with Jesus. Jesus is everything means that he is first and foremost, not just merely an aspect of our lives, not just a part of our lives. No, he saturates everything. He influences every minute, every interaction, everything. Jesus is everything. And what Philippians 3, in Philippians 3, Paul is going to paint a picture of what Jesus is everything, what that looks like in our lives. And so before we get into the details of this, let's pray and ask God that he would speak to our hearts. God, we do come before you and we're grateful for the fact that you love us. We're grateful for the fact that you pursue us. We're grateful that you know everything that we're going through, everything that we're experiencing, and you care, God. We thank you that you are present. We thank you that we are in your midst. Wherever we're sitting, wherever we're at, you are with us. And so I pray, God, you would give us an abundant awareness of who you are, that we would hear you speak through your word this morning. God, with all the things that we're carrying and processing and stressed about or excited about, God, I pray that you would help zoom our focus in on you this morning. That you would penetrate all of us, all of it, and speak to our hearts. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Jesus is everything. In Philippians 3, Paul's going to show us and talk to us about what this looks like. And the first thing that we see in this chapter is this. When Jesus is everything, we have to guard our hearts and our minds. When Jesus is your everything, you have to guard your heart and mind. He says in the very beginning, further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To rejoice isn't just a sing-along. He's not just leading us in a couple, in some music. He's telling them, find joy in what God is doing. 
Rejoice in Philippians is to find joy in the fact that God is always working. He's bringing it up again. Find joy in the fact that God is working. Find joy in the fact that God is always working. Find joy in the fact that in whatever you're going through, whatever you're experiencing, God is working. And he says to them, yes, I know I keep saying this. It is no trouble for me to write the same thing to you again, to keep bringing this up, to keep saying this. Why? Because this is a safeguard for you. You remembering that God is always working, you remembering who he is, you remembering what he's trying to do is a safeguard for your heart. It's not like this is the first time you've heard this, me say this. Because these truths are a safeguard, and what that means is they offer stability and safety. The same word that's used here in this verse is what we see in Hebrews 6, describing the hope that people have in Christ. In Hebrews 6, it says, we have, the hope, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. What is Paul saying in Philippians then is that repeating these truths about the fact that God is always working and the person that he's working on us to become, that is an anchor of safety, security, and stability in our lives. To remember that God is working on the type of person that you are to become more like his son, to have that knowledge constantly repeated to us is a security and a stability and a safeguard for our hearts. We need to hear this. We need to keep hearing this. We need to be constantly reminded of this. Why? He says out in ver- he tells us in verse 2, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. Now in verse 2, I mean, Paul says, you watch out for the dogs, for the evildoers, the mutilators of the flesh. This is pretty strong language. This is really to use the, how we describe things today, this is pretty divisive language to make sure that people know what is and is not the gospel. The gospel, when we talk about the gospel, when you hear the word the gospel, what that is, is the good news about Jesus. The good news about how Jesus restores humanity back to God and gives us the lives provides for us the lives we were created to have. And mathematically speaking, the way that the gospel works is that Jesus plus nothing equals being right before God, joy, and having meaning and purpose in life. The way that this group of false teachers that Paul is addressing here and that he addressed in other letters, they had a different equation. They had Jesus plus different rituals equals joy and right with God. If you don't have, yeah, Jesus is good, but if you don't have these other things, then you're not right with the Lord, then you're not getting the light, you're not living life as it should be. 
And spiritually speaking, Paul is saying that's really bad math. But he isn't just saying this is bad math. What Paul is saying is that anyone who promotes something contrary to the truth of the gospel is like a rabid dog that you need to avoid. Now, you come to my house, you're going to meet Darla, and you're going to meet my adorable dog. She's going to bark a little bit because she doesn't know you and she's protecting her family. But once you give her a treat and she calms down, you know, bribe her, she's going to be the cuddly, cute dog that you want to play with and cuddle with and sit with because that's Darla. If, though, you come around some other dog in an alley and it's doing the growl thing and it's foaming at the mouth, this isn't a dog you're going to cuddle with. This is the dog you're going to run away from. You're going to get away from. You're going to run away from and make sure no one else goes by the dog either. What Paul is saying is that anyone who changes the gospel is like that. Anybody who says things contrary to who Jesus is and what the gospel message is, he is saying, watch out for those dogs. Get away from them. You can't be around these people. You need to have a safeguard for your heart to know what a rabid dog is and know to get away. That's pretty strong language. And maybe we need that a little bit more in our day and age. What are some of the different safeguards that could help us? Well, think about the repetition Paul is saying. You need to hear this again. So I think that a couple safeguards to think about is one safeguard is our personal time in the word. To be reading the scriptures, to know what the gospel is, to know what Jesus expects, to know what living for him actually looks like. If we're not going back to the word to figure that out, then we're possibly going in the wrong direction. We can't know what the truth of the God, we, well, we can't know what a false gospel is unless we know what the true gospel is. And so in that, we have to have a personal time in the word to understand and learn the scriptures. Another safeguard is community teaching and processing. To be here, to be in community with sun on Sundays, whether it's me or somebody else, to hear the word being taught, to learn about the gospel, not just information that goes in our head, but the reality that comes in our life. We need that. This isn't just a checkbox. This is something that we need to grow, but also to be in community midweek and with others to be processing the reality of those truths and what it means to follow Christ. We need these safeguards in our lives. And I would say another one of the most important safeguards that we need is a in proactive, critical discernment to stop and ask is this truly godly is this what does this honor jesus is this biblical is this promoting holiness or is it something else i know i've said this so many times over the last year and some are getting sick of me saying that but i'll repeat what paul said i need to keep saying this is that we have concerned ourselves so much what, what it means to be conservative or liberal, Republican or Democrat, that we have forgotten to ask first and foremost, what does it mean to be biblical? What does it mean to be holy? What does it mean to honor Jesus? And honoring Jesus is defined by him first and foremost. We have to come back to the truth 
of Christ and the gospel. And so the question we need to ask is this. Who would Paul call a dog today? Who would, you, you don't think Paul would water it down or pull back a little bit in our world, do you? No, I, I think that Paul would be saying the exact same things. In fact, I think that we need to ask that. If Paul could hear the church today, who would he be looking at and hearing and going, why are you listening to those dogs? Why are you not avoiding that? We, you, have to be, you have to guard your heart against that stuff. What type of rabid dogs are you allowing into your own minds? What type of teaching, what type of ideas, what type of stuff are we allowing in that doesn't promote the truth of the gospel of holiness as he is holy, but something else? We have to guard our hearts and minds. When Jesus is everything, we have to protect ourselves and we have to protect one another. How we say something matters. We want all people to find Jesus. But those realities do not change the fact that we have to call out false teaching and we have to protect ourselves from the rabid dogs that are there in this day and age. And more than anything, this is a huge necessity. We have to guard our hearts. The second thing, when Jesus is everything, we know that only he gives life and purpose. When Jesus is everything, we know that only he gives life and purpose. Looking at verse 4, it says, If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. All of these different things, we're not going to get into every single one, but every single one of these things that Paul is addressing here are the things that would have been huge important in their day and age. And to talk through this, it's a little bit more on that spiritual math type of an idea that I mentioned in the first part. But we need to think through it with a specific nuance here. Because not only do we need to be careful about how others can distort the gospel, we also need to be mindful about how we might self-distort the gospel. We might be thinking about it wrong. And in this, what we need to consider is the fact that here, Paul gives his spiritual, his religious resume. And during that time, no one else would have had a better one. As far as there was a stack of religious resumes, and if somebody was going through all of them, it would have been Paul and everyone else. Because Paul had it all. He says, if anyone could have confidence in the things they have done, it would be him. Of all the things that Jewish people during that time would have seen as the best of the best, Paul had all of the boxes checked. He is the one that mothers would have talked about when they said to their kids, you really need to work on being more like him. You need to be more like Paul. He was the epitome of what they were working toward. Now think about these things from an accounting perspective. These were all credits. They would see, have seen these. I, I would have seen my accomplishments as tending to my heart 
as profiting my soul, the fact that all of these things that were true about me, I would have thought this is what my heart needed. This is what my life needed. This is who I am before God, what was needed there. But now he realizes that though these are good things, he's not saying that they're bad things in and of themselves, but they didn't actually profit his soul. If he spent so much effort with expectations that they would profit his soul, then these good things actually become a loss. In, in regard to what his heart needs, to the condition of his soul, they actually become debts. They become a loss. They're not doing what others would have thought they were supposed to do. And so you have to ask yourself, how do you come before God? How do you come before him? Or ask this, what spiritual resume do you bring before God? Is it you focused? All of the different things that you've accomplished listed out. All of the things that your parents believed and the house that you grew up in. Would it compare you to others? Would it be just talk about the morality that you've tried your best at? Or this, that, and the other. Would it all be about you? Or would it be all about Jesus? Would, would it just be Jesus on the page? Because in the next section he says, I don't have a righteousness of my own that comes from the law or anything I can do, but I have a righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. His spiritual resume wasn't about him, it was about Jesus. And does your spiritual resume point to the good news that through his life, death, and resurrection, that our sins are forgiven, the consequences of sin healed, and we are restored to God? Because if we think in our hearts anything other than Jesus, we are distorting the gospel. That isn't only how we come to God, but also how we live for God. And so I have to ask myself, do I subtly allow ideas into my identity, thinking that they're necessary to be right with him? Do I subtly look to other people as my savior complex or as an example, rather than a pure focus on Jesus? Who do you put your trust in? Who is the everything of your heart? Because if we're not obsessed with Jesus, if we're not looking to Jesus, if we're looking to anything else or anyone else, they will fail us. That's not what they're for. Only Jesus can give our hearts what it longs for. You know, I, I didn't have this in my notes, but I just feel compelled to even mention this. I, I think about things that have happened in the church, not only close at hand, but over the last couple of years where we've seen religious leaders fall. I mean, recent, recent reports about Ravi Zacharias. He was a, a teacher, an evangelist, an apologist, somebody that I looked up to. This was my hero. I loved this guy. I would recommend books by him to people, videos of him by people, and to see the reports of just the evil, heinous things that he was doing along all this other stuff. It crushed me uh, to see other church leaders, people that I've looked up to over the years, 
books I've read, same, the, you know, same thing, different name, to see them fall, to see them do these horrible things, to see these reports come out. It's crushing. And so the question, what's the point? If they're like this, why are we doing this? If they're like this, is it true? No. Because it's not about them. If anything, that proves the point. They're not being faithful to Jesus. They're not being faithful to the word. If they would have been doing what they were supposed to do, none of that would have happened. And so if anything, it diminishes them, but it actually magnifies the need for truth of who the word is, of what the word is, and who Jesus is. Now, please hear me. I am not minimizing any of the damage or anything that they've done in saying that. I've been part of a community where an arrogant, overbearing leader did huge damage because of their sins. That's true, and the pain from that is real. It's horrible, and it is dehabilitating. But that's why we need to turn our eyes and be everything about Jesus. Because if we're in a community simply for the people who are with it, if we're in a community only for the person who's up front talking, we're going to come to realize that none of those people are a prophet for our souls. It's only Jesus. Our hearts have to be on Jesus. No one has a spiritual resume that will be successful. No one has a spiritual resume that we can count on. It's only Jesus. Does that make sense? And so I just want to say, if you're listening today or you're here today, if you've been wounded by the church, if you've been hurt by the church, I am so sorry. If you're part of some of these communities where this things, these things happen, I am so sorry. It, it's evil. It's heinous. It should not be like that. And you need to know that's how God is looking at this. That's not what I wanted you to do. And yes, he is forgiving. Yes, he is gracious. Yes, he draws and restores people. But you need to know his love for you. Look to Jesus and look to him. Don't allow the fact that one or a few or others of the church are not doing as they should be. Look to it at the church and find the place where people are trying. You're never going to find a perfect church. Rich Mullins at one point, somebody said to him, um, I don't want to go to church. That's where all the hypocrites are at. He said, oh, well, and thanks God. Thanks, thankful for the grace of God. We can welcome one more in. Come on in. Because we're all hypocrites. None of us are perfect. We all come in imperfect. That doesn't justify the heinousness of horrible things. But we want to continue to look at him. Does that make sense? So we have to look to him for life and purpose. And when we keep looking to people and systems and other ideas, we distort the gospel like the rabid dogs he was warning us of. When Jesus is everything, we know that only he gives life and purpose. And the third thing, when Jesus is everything, nothing else compares to knowing him. Nothing else compares to knowing him. And this is my verse. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, 
for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Verse 10, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the righteousness from the dead. Now, twice you hear in this paragraph, it's a little bit longer, but you heard the phrase, knowing Christ. Nothing compares to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, in verse 8. Verse 10, I want to know Christ. There's a guy I went to high school with named Jeff, and um, Jeff knew every stat, he seemed to know every stat about every pro basketball player at the time, and probably most baseball players as well. He was just, he knew all the numbers, and we would quiz him. You would say any player, you would say any game, he always had his sports page out, he was, he just knew all of it. He knew you could, it was almost humorous to be able to quiz him, and just the things that he would know. He knew everything about these athletes. He knew all of this information about these athletes. But none of them knew him. If you asked any of these athletes, who is Jeff Qualiza, none of them would go, oh, oh, that guy, he's awesome. They'd all be like, who? Because it's just informational. And it was one-sided informational. It wasn't relational. What Paul is talking about here in Philippians 3 is about knowing Jesus, not simply details about him, not just biographical information and being able to recall story or passages. He's talking about specifically relationship. This is relationship. There is an intimacy of a relationship with Jesus and being one with him. To be a follower of Jesus is to know Jesus and nothing else compares to knowing him. In fact, Paul again, he uses really strong language here. Everything else is a loss compared to that relationship with him. But here our translations say consider them garbage. It misses the intensity of what Paul is saying. Talk about a euphemism, just kind of watering it down a little bit. What Paul is basically saying is everything is feces compared to knowing Jesus. And you color that language in however it's best for you. But that's the point that Paul is making. If I'm comparing, this doesn't mean that things are good and bad. What it means is that when we compare anything to Jesus, nothing compares to Jesus. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter who it is. It doesn't matter anything we can come up with. When we attempt to compare things to Jesus, nothing compares to knowing Jesus. And he says this from their context and what's going on with this church and with Paul. In the midst of your suffering, nothing compares to knowing Jesus. In the midst of the challenge of giving allegiance to the politicians of the day, nothing compares to knowing Jesus. In the midst of feeling stuck, 
Nothing compares to knowing Jesus. In the midst of not life not going as you thought it would or as you would want it to, nothing compares to knowing Jesus. Nothing compares to that relationship with him, to knowing him. When I graduated from undergrad, I, um, I had a great... I, I, was, I went to school to be a youth pastor. I, youth ministry was what I wanted to do. Um, at the time, I mean, I, I had really two things I, my heart really wanted. I wanted to be a youth pastor. I wanted to be married and have a family. Nothing else. Those are like the, the two things I wanted, my two dreams. I want to have a family, and I want to be a youth pastor. And I graduated with no girlfriend, and so the family thing wasn't working out. And I, but I did have an amazing youth ministry position lined up. It was at a really big church in the area. It was the dream youth ministry situation to be in. And when the whole thing got into it and stepped in, about to step into it, literally the night it was about to happen, and just really felt the conviction from God, like this isn't what you're supposed to be doing. And so said no to this. And so I'm back in my little one a studio apartment in Uptown, funny enough, about a half a mile from where I live right now, working at a pager store down in the loop. Yes, that ages me just by saying that. By myself. And it really was one of the hardest times in my life at that point because I, things weren't happening the way that I thought that they were going to happen. And the things I wanted more than anything weren't coming. They weren't there. And so there was depression. There was sadness. It was like everything that I want I don't have. Everything that I feel like I need isn't here. Something's wrong. I remember one night I, I came back and how it worked and hung out with maybe some friends, but I remember coming back to the apartment and just, again, alone and trying to figure life out. And I was reading Philippians. I was going through Philippians at the time and came to this verse. Came to Philippians 8 and 9. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I, all, all sake I have lost all things. I consider everything else garbage that I might gain Christ. There was a moment in my faith journey where I, I truly felt the presence of the Lord and felt just the, the, a word from the Lord of, is knowing me more important than anything else you want? Is knowing me, is the relationship that we have more important than the relationships that you're desiring? The, the, whether it's ministry, goal, career, purpose, whether it's relationship, marriage, whatever that might be, whatever that thing is, do you really think that's better than what I have to give you? And in that moment, I had a peace in my heart. Real, again, it wasn't that wanting these things were bad. It wasn't that those things were evil. It wasn't that having those desires was a wrong thing. But in that moment, I realized that I had to get to the, and I, was get, I got to the point, and I, in that moment said, if none of these happen, and I have you, then I have everything. If I have you, I have everything. 
And you know what? I think about all the times that we're in right now. If COVID season has taught us everything, is that a lot of ideas of the way we thought life would be, a lot of things that we thought would happen, aren't happening. And yeah, our lives have been shook up, but is your identity crumbling? And if your identity is crumbling right now, you have to ask yourself, are you valuing other things more than knowing Jesus? Because when Jesus is everything and knowing him is greater than anything else, then that gives you perspective and peace and guidance in the present. I read that passage and I remember, okay, God, this isn't easy. And I'm probably going to need to remind myself of this tomorrow. But I acknowledge and I know and I believe you're everything. And I really want these things, but I have you. And so I'm trusting you. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's gonna, where this is going to go, but I trust you. I finished that time with the Lord, and I'm, I love to read. I'm a big reader, and I was reading a book called Prayer for Owen Meany by John Irving. Uh, this is my favorite book of all time. And it's the first time I'd ever read it. I've probably read it 20 times since then and given it to 100 people. But I came to this one part of the book where this quote happened. And for Dave Benazak, this is the quote, the conversation we had. In the book, the character Owen Meany, the author describes Owen Meany as this. Owen Meany believed that coincidence was a stupid, shallow concept. Excuse me. Coincidence was a stupid, shallow refuge sought by stupid, shallow people who were unable to accept the fact that their lives were shaped by a terrifying and awesome design. Owen Meany believed that coincidence was a stupid, shallow refuge sought by stupid, shallow people who were unable to accept the fact that their lives were shaped by a terrifying and awesome design. And in that moment, again, it was like two times in one night. Okay, if you believe me that knowing, if you believe that knowing me is everything, are you going to trust me to care for you? Because that's the reality. That's, that's the thing, right? To say that Jesus is everything and all of these other things aren't everything means that we have to trust him that he's going to care for us and he's going to care about these other things, right? And in that moment, it was, you know what? Maybe the realization and the awareness and the admission and confession in my heart that God has walked with me through every step of my journey. Nothing that I've gone through has been like, he's been like, whoa, didn't see that coming. He's known every single piece. He's known every single thing. We, my, uh, the, the Friday night moss ritual right now, we go get Chipotle, we watch WandaVision, and then we figure out, try to figure WandaVision out for the next two hours. Anybody else in that place? Others, you're praying for us in our weird nerdness. But it's, what does this mean? Where's that going? I have no idea where the story is. God never thinks that way about you. As we try to figure our life out and where it's going and what's going to happen and how this next chapter is going to be and how the story end, it makes for good TV watching. But God knows. He's in control. And to think that he's not is to go along with stupid, shallow dogs. You have to trust him. I know this COVID season is so hard. 
It is causing depression. It's causing sadness. I have felt it myself. And so I say to my, me and I say to you, we have to remember, we know Jesus. And that's greater than anything not going on right now. And he's in control. Trust him. Trust him. And trust him isn't just this cerebral like, okay, oh. It means obey him. Do the things that he tells us to do. Be the type of person he wants you to be. Do the things that he's tasked us with. Making other disciples. Loving our neighbor. Drawing people back to him. Being merciful. Be the person that Jesus is working on you to become. Trust him. Trust his care. Trust that knowing him is the best. Trust that he is everything. With him, nothing else compares. And when you get to that point, you are going to experience a peace and a joy and a sense of purpose you were meant to have because you are meant to be with him. And that's what he gives. When Jesus is everything, nothing else compares to him. What are you trusting in right now? What are you leaning into? What are you worried about? Again, not that you shouldn't be concerned about all those things, but is knowing Jesus everything and is that guiding you through the difficulties? Because that's how we go on and that's what we close with. When Jesus is everything, we have something worth persevering for. This last part of this passage, not that I have already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Jesus Christ. It does get hard. And it is painful. And it stinks sometimes. We cannot deny the reality that sometimes life is just horrible. But in the midst of it, even in the most horrible times, we can find joy because we know Jesus in the midst of it. We know he is working in the midst of it. And we trust him to guide us. And so we press on. Keep going. Keep pushing. Don't give up. If you don't feel like you can make it, then tell somebody and let them carry you for a little while. But keep going. Keep pressing on. Keep pushing. Don't give up. You see somebody fail? You see you experiencing difficult, hard, strenuous times? You're not sure what's going to happen? Keep going. Keep pressing on. Keep seeing him as everything. Because he is. Because he is. And in him we don't have to give up. We're going to end with communion this morning and to process the things that we've heard and to, to direct our hearts in just confession and surrender to Jesus.
And so if you have the elements um, that were passed out to you at home, if you want to go ahead and grab them while people at home are grabbing them, those of you who are here, if, if you haven't used uh, these little communion contraptions, there's two uh, covers for these. The clear one will get you to the cracker. Well, that's a uh, generous term. Um, and then the smaller one, the silver one, will get you to the juice. And so just so you don't whip it off and both of them off and have a mess. When we receive communion, we always take a moment just of quiet, of centering our hearts on Christ, of being quiet before him, to allow him to speak to our hearts, to meditate on his word. It's a time of being you in, in the presence of the Lord. Maybe you need to confess something. Maybe you need to thank him for something. Maybe you just need to be quiet and meditate on who he is. But when we come to communion, we do this to remember what Jesus has done. We come to remember the sacrifice that he made to make it where we can know God, that we can be one with him. This is the reminder that it's not anything that we can do. This is the reminder that it's not anything anyone else can do. It's a reminder that it's only what Jesus has done. It's the life that we have in him. So remember now who Jesus is. Let's be quiet before him for just a moment and then we'll receive communion. So God, I pray you would speak to our hearts. I pray that you would let us hear the things that we need to be reminded of, even that we just heard. Center who we are on you. Let's be quiet before him just for a moment. If you're in here with me, would you stand up? And if you're at home, if you'd like to as well, just to participate in communion with us. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Jesus, we come before you as frail, redeemed people, knowing that that redemption is only because of you, because of your work on the cross, because of your resurrection from the dead, because of your love, God. You're pursuing us mercifully and graciously. Forgive us for finding value, for looking to other things. Forgive us for distorting the gospel. God, I pray you would give us courage to be faithful, that you would give us courage to speak truth, that you would unify us as a church 
in who we are in you, God. God, I pray that communion would not only remind us of of who we are in you and what you've done, but what we need to be sharing, God. I pray that you would give us a burden for our neighbors, for those that we know that don't know you, that we would show them good images of you, God, that we would show them a good reality of who you are and invite them to you. God, we just thank you so much that you're worth knowing. God, we thank you so much that you love us. We say this all in your name. We remember all that you've done. Let's receive communion together. We're grateful for your broken body, for your shed blood, for the empty tomb. We thank you for who we are in you and that we can be called your sons and daughters, that we can be a family. It's in your name we pray, amen. I'm going to close with one last song. I asked the team if they could do this old song that I think just really speaks to the heart of this passage. It speaks to the truth of knowing